Hey, welcome to the Dialectica Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Matt. And today we're going to be discussing one of the most interesting characters in the entire story, Littlefinger. And to start off, we're just going to go over a little summary of what Littlefinger has done so far in our story. But then we'll go on to what he represents and where he might go from there. Matt, take it away. So we first meet Littlefinger in the story uh, when we get to King's Landing. He is serving as the master of coin for King Robert. Uh, he has he got that appointment uh, due to his relationship with John Aaron, um, whom he impressed uh, with his ability to bring in more money uh, than any other collectors. Of, you know that they're in service to the king. So in a sense, he earned this position through his through merit in his his ability to you know bring in money. Um, he wasn't given this position because he was born into the right family. He was given this position because he had skills that others saw and they wanted to utilize or exploit. Right. As well as his uh, his relationship with Lysa Aaron. So he did have a bit okay. of um, uh, help there. Um, but the bottom line is, is that he was able to, uh, I mean, you can't deny he did bring in money. Um, so there's that. So then, you know, we start to see, we actually learn a lot about Littlefinger in that first book. I mean, we, he makes a big appearance at the hands tourney to Sansa and, and reveals that he, you know, he was infatuated with, uh, with Catalan Tali. Um, and, you know, from there we kind of learn Littlefinger grew up with the Tullys at River Run where he, he was infatuated with Catalan, but Catalan did not, you know, you know, show love for him too. So it was unrequited love. Um, may I pause you there? I think there is, Littlefinger once said that he, I think he said that he may have taken Cat's virginity. He claims he has. He does claim that. Um, and, and I believe he does truly believe he did. Um, because there was a, it was after Brandon Stark was betrothed to Cat, or, to Catalan Tully, um, there was a, a feast, and uh, Peter got drunk, very drunk, and the oh. tried to <laughs> tried to kiss uh, Catalan, and she said no. Um, so the Blackfish carried him back to his bed, and uh, you know, in his drunken stupor, um, had sex with Lysa Tully, uh, believing it to be Catalan. Are you sure that's true, or is that the most likely theory? Uh, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's what's stated for us in the book. Um, Catalan never thinks about having sex with, uh, um, okay. right. with Peter. So I, I don't see any reason not to believe that yeah. turn of events. And, and here's the other theory that comes to mind since we're discussing this period. If he had sex with, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lysa. Lysa. Is it possible that he's the father of... Uh, what's his name? Sweet, Sweet Robin. Robin. So I do, I personally believe that Sweet Robin is actually the illegitimate child of uh, Peter Baelish and Lysa Tully. However, I, be- I, I believe that that particular, and the timeline for that to be true, would they would have had to have had that uh, relation in King's Landing. So it would not have been, so that was too early along in the storyline. Okay. They did, however, conceive a child that was aborted. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, so the, the Tansy. The Tansy. Thing, yeah. I, I didn't believe Littlefinger had any knowledge of that particular thing. Particular, um, well, he knows a lot of things. But anyway, going on. So going on. So we learn about Peter, his backstory a little bit. Um, uh, you, He is pretty influential in Ned's uh, story in, in King's Landing. Uh, so he... <sighs> And so it's, hard, it's actually hard to tell. When he was trying to assist Ned, um, there are some points in time where if it does seem that if Ned would have agreed to his terms, like uh, when it comes to the coup, uh, if he would have agreed to Ned just take the regency and Littlefinger help him out, would he have just you know been okay with that? So I don't know. I mean, uh, you, you, you got yes. to think that, that uh, Littlefinger does hold a grudge against Ned Stark uh, for marrying the woman he loves, but I do think that uh, had Ned been a little bit more reasonable in Peter's Peter's eyes, you would have seen um, 
that he probably would have uh, assisted Ned for a little bit longer than what he did. Well, we can actually him. we can actually do a thought experiment, and figure out whether or not that's the case. If we have enough information to determine that, so what we do is he offered Ned um, the gold take, cloaks. You, you know, he offered them the gold cloaks. Take the kingdom. You will be in charge until Joffrey turns eighteen. Fifteen. Um, yes, fifteen. Okay. So. Um, but take the kingdoms, and then we'll fight off Stannis and whatnot. What motive does he have? So, there's two options. Is he he's lying, or he's not? Now, if he's lying, what? How would this lie help Littlefinger? And see, that's the thing. If you so for some reason, Littlefinger needed Ned Stark in King's Landing. Um, so he wrote a letter. To or he had Lysa write a letter to Catelyn with the main motivation of the letter is to get Ned to King's Landing. So he needed Ned... So that King, he could find out about the incest. So he could find out about the incest because Peter, or Littlefinger, wanted the Lannisters and the Starks to go to war. So that was part of his plan. He needed the Lannisters and the Starks to go to war. Now, did he just want them to go to war so that Ned would be out of the way? Or Tywin would be out of the way, or did he have a different motive for them wanting to go to war? Um, did he want one to win so that he could? Do you think that Littlefinger thinks he has a shot at getting back with Lysa? With Lysa? Sorry, with, with uh, Cat. I think he does at the beginning of the story, but at the hand's tourney, you can actually see where he shifts his focus from Catelyn to, to Sansa. Sansa. Um, well. It's the only time Littlefinger loses his. I cool. think he requires a northern, a, a northern bride for its. Well, actually, I don't. I don't know that. Well, the question is why. Is he a romantic? Do you no. think Littlefinger's just one big romantic? No, he's um. He's a numbers guy, and I, I don't think he's that dynamic. I think he definitely likes girls. Um, I'm definitely as a kid, he was. Um, infatuated with with her. But may, maybe. I see it being something bigger than that. There's some hidden motive we don't know. Um, anyway, let's finish up a, with the summary. A summary, so, and then we'll go to what we think his motive is. So then Littlefinger um, kind of befriends Ned, then betrays him. There, and then from this point, his motives actually kind of become a little bit more cloudy. You know, what exactly is he doing? You start to get this thought is, well, does he have a grand plan, or is he just driving in chaos, because he uh, negotiates after um, Stannis defeats Renly, he negotiates for the Tyrells to join the fold. He then um, devises a plan to insult the Florence, the greatest house in this series, um, so that the Florence will turn against the Tyrells and, uh, you know, in a sense, cause a power, you know, a power struggle within the Reach itself, so it seems like he's pl kind of playing the long game in the Reach. Basically, he was taking advantage of the political situation. He created, um, to a large extent, this chaotic situation, and then, here's my thoughts, he planned on creating this chaos. However, he also knew that he could work on his feet, and this situation, he was adapting to that chaos and building up. On that situation. And he actually offered the Tyrells more or less the same offer that he did to Ned. In what way? Um, marry your heir to Joffrey, uh, yeah. or marry your daughter to Joffrey, um, wait till they come of age. It's, it's a similar story, a little okay. different because Ned was given the regency, but it kind of shows that Littlefinger can be negotiated with. He's not. Flexible. Yeah, he's flexible. Um, so then from there we see. Uh, Littlefinger then leaves King's Landing to, uh, well, he's granted the lordship of Harrenhal, and he leaves King's Landing to marry Lysa Tully. Um, and before he leaves, he uh, may or may not have been involved in the poisoning of Joffrey. According to him, he convinced uh, Lady Elena to do it. Um, and uh, he, he admits this when he's, when he's talking to Sansa, and... Uh, he ships her away to the Vale uh, to be in hiding, where he is currently. Um, well, he then marries Lysa Tully, you know, becomes acting Lord Protector of the Vale, and uh, then kills her. And 
He's a temporary governor. Temporary governor of the Vale. So he's got and, a, and he's um, a... And he manipulated his way into getting a, a year's worth of governorship. Yes. Um, in yeah. which... And, and so he has, in that time, secured a number of valuable hostages in the Vale. Um, and he's starting to bring the Vale lords... He's starting to consolidate his power with a lot of the Vale lords. So that's where he's sitting at now. And... Uh, uh, it really kind of leaves us to the question is, what is his plan? What is his, you know, what's his ultimate What is his goal? role in the story? Yes. And this kind of gets back to, we, we've had similar conversations before, and I think I've convinced you of this mostly, that Littlefinger represents capitalism, or that he is the vessel by which capitalism will be introduced into this feudal society. Either unknowingly or knowingly. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about capitalism is that you can be a complete, you know, terrible person. However, you can specialize your skills and through the free market, you can sell a product and people benefit. Even though you're doing it for completely greedy and selfish reasons, you're helping the world as a whole. And my thought is that, my hypothesis, is that Littlefinger is a bad actor. He's completely interested in himself, maybe doing a prophecy or whatnot. But through his bad actions, he's going to bring about a good revolution in the story. A capitalist revolution. He's not, it's not going to be, a, a you know, 1870s America when this is done. It's not going to be capitalist paradise, but we will see the introductions of um, free markets and free exchange of goods and a growing economy. Thanks in part to Littlefinger's actions, and that's my hypothesis. And 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 this is where I have been swayed a little bit on this one to think that I, I definitely am, am moved towards and maybe Littlefinger is the agent in which capitalism is introduced. However, the one thing that we do need to address before we get into this is George R. R. Martin's understanding of um, the economy. Let's hold that off for a little bit, and let's go into the. Littlefinger Capitalism, let's go to our quote, which is from Tyrion Three in Clash of Kings. Sound good? Yep, sounds good. Um, this is when, this is the first time Tyrion met Peter um, at the small council meeting? This is in Clash of Kings, so uh, Tyrion at this point is acting as hand in Tywin's place, and he's kind of starting to learn a little bit about the political structure there. So he's, yeah. he's trying to learn what's Vari's role, um, Littlefinger's what's Littlefinger's role, and his sisters, um, and, his sisters and how, how, how did the, uh, he's learning to play the game a little bit. So in... Yeah, and I'll go into it right now. Um, Tyrion might be one of the only people smart enough to figure out Littlefinger's plan, in my opinion, and I think Tyrion's analysis is very enlightening on what Littlefinger might be up to in the story. And this might be kind of the defining thing about Littlefinger is yep. this, this part right here. This maybe yep. his defining quote or his ideology. Yeah, it's a couple of It's a couple of segments here. All right, here we go. If ever truly a man had armored himself in gold, it was Peter Baelish, not Jamie Lannister. Jamie's famous armor was but gilded steel, but Littlefinger, uh, Littlefinger had learned a few things about Sweet Peter to his growing disquiet. Ten years ago, John Aaron had given him a minor censure in customs where Lord Peter Baelish had soon distinguished himself by bringing in three times as much as any of, any of the other king's collectors. King Robert had been such a prestigious spender, a man like Peter Baelish, who had a gift for rubbing two golden dragons together to breed a third was invaluable to his hand. Littlefinger's rise had been arrow-swift. Within three years of coming to court, he was the master of coin and a member of the small council. And today, the crown's revenues were ten times what they had been under his beleaguered predecessor, though the crown's debts had also grown as well. A master juggler was Peter Baelish. Oh, he was clever. He did not simply collect the gold and lock it in a treasure vault, no. He paid the king's debts and promises, and put the king's gold to work. He bought wagons, shops, ships, houses, and brought. He bought grain when it was plentiful, and sold bread when it was scarce. 
He brought wool from the north and linen from the south and lace from lease, and stored it, moved it, dyed it, sold it, and the golden dragons bred and multiplied, and Littlefinger lent them out and bought them and brought them home with the hatchlings. And in the process he moved his own men in place. The keepers of the keepers of the keys were all his, all four, the king's counter and the king's scales were his were were men he'd named. The officers in charge of the three mints, the harbor masters, tax farmers and custom surgeons, wool factors, toll collectors, purses, wine factors, nine out of every ten belonged to Littlefinger. They were men of middling birth, and by and large, merchants, sons, lesser lordlings, sometimes even foreigners. But judging from their results, far more far more able than their highborn predecessors. No one had ever thought to question the appointments. Why should they? Littlefinger was no threat to anyone. A clever, smiling, genial man, everyone's friend. Always able to find whatever gold the king or his hand required. And yet, of such undistinguished birth, one step up from the hedge knight, he was not a man to fear. He had no banners at all, no army of retainers, no great stronghold, no holdings to speak of, no prospects of a great marriage. But do I dare touch him? Little thing, uh, Tyrion wondered. Is he, if even if he is a traitor? He was not at all certain he could, least of all now. While war raged, given time he could replace Littlefinger's men in key positions, but dot dot dot. The chapter continues. And I think that is the chapter that it's a section that explains Littlefinger's brilliance. Yeah, so clearly, and it states in here, that he's doing something that hasn't been seen before. Mm-hmm. So his predecessor would just, and, and, the, and you got to assume the people before him, would just take in taxes, lock it up, and then when the king needed to spend things, they'd spend the gold. And so the, the system of, the system of commerce there is just one such that the taxes by themselves. Yeah, so let's pay for. So me and you both know a little bit about economics. You know more than I. I know a little more history than you. But let's discuss a little bit about economics and what he's doing here. So if I earn a thousand dollars and you earn a thousand dollars and I take a thousand dollars and I put it under my mattress and I I wait a while to spend that thousand dollars. You know, is that the most effective way for me to store my money? Oh, not at all. Um, the in, in in basic economic terms, you you're actually losing money. So we have a thing called opportunity cost, and the opportunity cost of something is the money you're losing by not, you know, fully utilizing the potential of your money. Um, in, in layman's terms, basically, I have a thousand dollars. I invest it, or I even sit it in a bank account earning 0.02%. That opportunity cost that you lose is actually that interest that I'm gaining. So you're actually having a negative effect there. So, so if I was to spend my money wisely, I $1,000, maybe I could invest that in a friend's business, and then hopefully my friend's business might grow, or what other things might you do. Are you seeing little? What things is Littlefinger doing? So what Littlefinger's doing here is is a basic finance. You know, basically in basic finance is use other people's money to make money. It's a pretty basic concept, and that's what he's doing here. So what he has done that looks like no one else has done before is it says here he pays the king's debts with promises, and and so what he's doing here is he's in a sense it's a loan. It's a loan. It's almost like a credit card. So that's the way I would think about it, is a credit card. So he is taking and he is investing other people's money, in a sense, to make money off of it. So he's, he's buying... So he, what he's doing, and again, I'm just kind of speculating. Here's what I'm saying. is He's taking uh, lace from lease, and he's telling the lace merchant, he's saying, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you back on Tuesday... For the lace, if you give it to me now, and the king, the king's word is behind this. Yeah, and this is he bought wagons, shops, ships, houses. He bought grain when it was plentiful and sold bread when it was scarce. So, um, basic economics. 
buy low, sell high. When grain is cheap, I buy a bunch of it and I store it. And then once there's a little bit of a famine, I make a bunch of bread and I sell it for much larger profit than if I would have just right. sold it immediately. And and it, that on top of the fact that he's making money while not spending his own money. Mm-hmm. So oh well, yeah, he can skim a little bit off the top, put it in his own right, right, personal right. fortune as well as so by if uh, so for example, if you give me so you're um, selling widgets, okay? okay? It's a term we use in economics, right? widgets. So if you're selling widgets, okay, and I and and I have the ability to turn a widget into you know, a Chingus, which is a different product, okay? So I tell you, you're the supplier for me. Mm-hmm. I say, hey, Nick, um, how about you front me 500 widgets, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you any money for it now, okay? So what I'm doing here is I'm not tying up my own cash flow, okay? Good. I'm going to turn those widgets into Chinguses. Mm-hmm. Once I've turned those into it, I will then pay you back. And I'm assuming the value of the chingus compared to the widget the value of the chingus is, is two more, or three times exactly. what it was originally. And I'm benefiting because You're I'm getting, getting my, my widgets yes. sold effectively. Um, however, you're winning even more. I'm winning because more. Yeah, and and it's a it's a beneficial relationship. A benefit. we, we both win. We both benefit. And this is it's that's kind of the basis of a more advanced uh, society than just a barter, you know, barter. And the interesting thing is, if you're, if you're Littlefinger and you're the only one doing this and everyone else is... Um, doing it the old way? Yeah, doing it the old way. You know, you're going to have massive profits. And let's talk about the old way. The old way versus the new way of thinking what Littlefinger's doing. So this is where I want to get into, I want to uh, um, retouch back on um, George's understanding of the economy. Let's hold that off just a little bit more. The one thing I wanted to talk about, um, the last thing I want to talk about this with, is that it discusses, uh, let me find the spot. Harbormasters, tax farmers, custom services, wool, fa- wool factors, toll collectors, pursers, wine factors. Nine out of ten never belong to Littlefinger. They're men of middling birth. They're, by and large, merchants, sons of lesser lords, sometimes foreigners. But judging by their results, far more able than their highborn predecessors. Okay, so we're going to get into a little bit into feudal economics. And in a feudal society, which is the society that they're all living in, there's a king... There's lords, lesser lords, knights, and peasants, which is everyone else. And peasants are generally stuck to the land, born on the land. You can't sell your land. You can't do anything but farm the land and give a section of your of your grain to your lords as taxes. That's usually the way that it works. And whatever it's it's similar to the caste system. Whatever caste you're born in, you're stuck. There's no social mobility. And so if you were born and your father owned a blacksmith shop, you're going to be a blacksmith. doesn't matter if you're not good at being a blacksmith. That's where you're probably going to end up being. If you're a farmer, like almost everyone was, you're going to grow up being a farmer. Now, it doesn't matter. Like, if you if you're born and you have an IQ of 165 and you want to be a mathematician or an astronomer or some other useful social function... In feudalism, you can't get anywhere with that. You're stuck in your position. And people who have no motivation to raise through the ranks of, you know, becoming a better and better merchant or whatnot, they tend to do their jobs way more efficiently than someone who has a monopoly over a certain area. Um, What I see Littlefinger doing is giving people who would usually have social stigma against them choosing a new profession and giving them a job, not because they were born into that, that caste, but because they're good at it. Um, and I see, and when you do that, I could easily see the, the revenues, the tax revenues going up, you know, tenfold just because people who want to do a certain job have an opportunity to go do that job. And Littlefinger's giving them that economic freedom which is why Littlefinger, I think, being a 
an evil person overall. He doesn't mind killing people, manipulating one another. He's introducing a system where there is freedom of the individuals to become merchants or, you know, he'll give them money to run a business. And they if they run that business well, they'll continue that business. What do you think of that? Well, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that he himself um, had to do that. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, it's true. Um, the He is appointing the best person to the job rather than by birth by birth um so it just and i mean like i said his even within universe within george's writing he is successful at it however that still breaks the question is if Littlefinger is so good at you know finding this money where's it all going that's the real question okay um so generally it goes to a couple places. First off, it goes to the people. Um, they'll pay a big chunk of it. If you, if you're Littlefinger, you give me a loan. I start up a new textiles, you know, you know, little industry. You know, no industrial revolution, but my own little little factory. I hire people to work who want to work on it. Me and my employers are going to get a big chunk of that money of the increased productivity of me being qualified for the job. The first person to benefit is the workers, right? And the people who start their own business. Um, so that's the first part where the money's going. The next part where the money's going is into debt. I don't really understand how this works, especially in George's universe. It's but the debts for the crown have gone up tenfold in addition to um, the, the tax revenues going up tenfold. I don't know if that's because Littlefinger is embezzling and he's doing that on purpose. Yeah. Or if it's and just because George doesn't understand the micro thing. Yes, and I, I think there's a little bit of both. But <laughs> there is evidence towards the first. Um, it mentions in this little chapter that little, I, I don't know exactly where, but Littlefinger, uh, a man like Peter Baelish, who had a gift for rubbing two gold dragons together to breed a third. Now, if I control, like he does, the people who mint the money, and there's only so much gold in the world, and this is something that the Romans did as well, I can put a little bit of nickel into the gold, you know, two-thirds gold, one-third nickel. Now I have rubbed two gold dragons together, made a third, and now I have more. So then that begs the question is if uh, where, but still you still have the, the problem is, is if he's making profits and he's, he's, he's efficient with how he's doing things, mm-hmm. okay, where's all this money going to? Where, I mean, because... Part to the money, part to the crown, part to him. I would say, but... And then the role of the bank comes in here, too. Because oh, yes. he is borrowing money. Okay, so he borrows a lot of money to do this. Okay, he didn't mention that. I don't think yeah. he mentioned that in so this chip. The, right. In book one, we find out that the crown is in debt to both the Lannisters and the Iron Bank of Rocks. And, and the, um, and the, what is it? And the church as well. The church. It's called. Um, however, so this is where, as a history guy, you might enjoy this. I recently got back from Florence, so uh, I've uh, been reading a lot about this. But the the Iron Bank of Bravos bears a striking resemblance to the Medici Bank of Florence in the Renaissance. Um, now, the, do you know what century? I want it. Oh, it was the thirteen hundreds. It was the fourteen, fifteen hundreds. Is okay. Yeah. Um, the, the fascinating thing about this, and a lot of people, you know, just to, as a basic understanding of how banks work is, um, you give me money, I give you a little bit of interest on it. I take your money and I loan it out to other people with a higher rate of interest. And that's how a bank makes the money yep. in our own time. Okay. Um, God, this gets complicated real quick in our own time. Um, just in simplistic, you know, for thousands of years. The Catholic Church did not allow this. Okay, it's called usury, and the Catholic Church did not allow people to banks to lend out money um, in that traditional in that traditional way that we do today. Um, the way, and I mean, there's a lot more to it, but it's very and, simple. And that's that's for that's for a religious reason. It's it's not for any kind of. As far as I understand, it's it's a thing in the Bible that says that. Yes, um, it's religious dogma. It's also in the it's also in the Quran. Yeah, and the um, 
So then the way the banks got around it back then was rather than charging you interest, okay, I give you money, and then you give me a portion of your profits. Okay. So similar concept, but, you know, it's just it's a, it's a yeah, way to get around it. So my question is, and I don't really know and about the books, is does the Iron Bank lend out in terms of, do they do usury? Do they charge interest? Or are they skimming off the profits? Because if it's the way the Medici Bank works and Peter, you know, Littlefinger is making these profits, but all his loans he's taken out, you know, a good chunk of the profits just going back to the, you know, the bank. It's, it, there's a, you know, there's it's a good, you know, it, where is the money going is kind of the sense. Okay. Um, now we're starting to get into some more difficult questions, and now we're reaching the point where George may not understand. <laughs> That's the key. Um, like, 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 we can go back and forth and put theories. Speculate. But if George, he's not an economist. Well, and see, the thing is... He probably knows a little bit, he, he but has given, he may not have thought this part through. Maybe he has an editor who's thought it through. Maybe that's possible, but... Well, he's given us enough to work with on how we can kind of figure out the scale here, okay? Um, in certain uh, Hedge Knight, we kind of learn a, like we learn a lot about what you can buy with his different his coinage. Okay, um, you can buy a horse for a couple dragons. You can buy, you know, more or less, you can buy a horse for a gold dragon. Okay? So you got to think. The Hound won fifty thousand gold dragons. Jesus Christ! From the hands turning. So you can see the the and issue of scale let me, here. Um, let me think of some other figures. For a, in places, see, I, I could be wrong on this, but in to buy a a beast of burden, like a like a goat or um, like an ox or whatnot, usually people could not afford to buy their own horse. You, it would take a decade of, of saving to buy a, a pony or whatnot. Right. And usually what they would do is I wouldn't even buy my own. What people do, and they do this in a, uh, what, what is it, Laos and Cambodia, is I give money to someone else in the community who, owed, who owns a, a female horse and I buy breeding rights. So I have my male horse, I buy breeding horse, breeding rights with your female and now I get, uh, um, and that's expensive. Yeah. Um, so, that, so the point and here 20, is twenty thousand horses and and fifty fifty thousand. And, and and for a suit of armor in medieval Europe, I believe it was about ten years of a man's wealth. And people did this. And don't buy one for a couple. Of, yeah, I, I don't remember the exact figures, yeah. but it was a couple silvers or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Well, people going on crusade, they would spend they would buy full they buy a full suit of armor with 10 years worth of money which they don't know currently own they must have taken a loan out from or maybe the church was subsidizing this or whatever <laughs> but um that was something that happened so the issue here is Angai the archer here's a funny story so Angai the archer wins the archery contest i want to say he wins like 30,000 um gold dragons or something like that and um, by the time Arya meets him, when he's with the Brotherhood Without Banners, he has somehow spent 30,000 gold dragons. Well, so if a if, horse... If, if you can buy 30,000 horses with that... Well, you can't buy 35,000. You can't buy that many horses because there's not that many horses. Right. So my, The price would go up. Um, here's... So he, he may have been able to spend that, and I'll tell you why. Um he was with the Brotherhood Without Banners, and the Brotherhood Without Banners, I'm pretty sure they would have collectivized. They needed money to for their war effort. But he claims they, he spent it on whores and wine. Well, he's full. That's a lot of whores and wine. Because no, no whore in the Middle Ages would cost as much as buying a horse. Right, and so that's where... Do my, you know how many whores there were? My point I'm driving home here is we can't really look at... 
the 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 numbers and the details of the economy with George. We have to look at the the macro larger concepts. So, we, but does he understand the macro? I don't. Let, let's let's get into let's discuss his philosophy of because we we don't know his position on uh, economics. We don't know. Uh, do you support a progressive income tax, George? Do you support you know? We can speculate know? again. We can speculate his. His grand macro things, but when it comes yes. down to the, the, yep. the smaller details and, of it. And we, if we can assume that people who tend to be socialists, well, I'm not even sure where to go with this. What, what is George's uh, political ideologies? It's, it's, it's hard to say. He's very, he's a feminist. He's a, you know, he's a pacifist. Um, he, based upon his writings, I would say he swings socialist. Uh, he doesn't agree with debt. He thinks that... He doesn't that, agree with he debt. He does not agree with debt. He makes a lot of statements on debt in our society and how, at least the way I interpret it a lot, is he looks at debt as another form of slavery. Okay. So... <laughs> what about loans? Like, if, if, if I took out a loan to start a business, is that... So I, is, is that I'm now enslaved to, to the bank? To yeah, the bank. to the bank. I, I think George does kind of look at that as a form of slavery. Okay. Um, so I and then so and then and then I think he swings and with that ideology he swings somewhat communist. He does uh, because in a in a communist society you, you, you don't you don't have that debt. I mean, it's uh it you know so and so that's why I think that um, when you see things like the Brotherhood Without Banners giving out IOUs. When you read that, oh, when you read that, that makes you feel like he, the way he presents it, and the way he shapes it, he doesn't shape that as a, well, hang on, I'll, yeah, I, I don't mind giving these guys my money because they're going to give me tenfold later. He shapes it in this, like, I'm not getting that yeah, money they, back. Yeah, the, that, that slip of paper that he the hound... He makes you feel nasty about it. That they stole the hound's money. Uh, how much was it? 20,000 20, gold dragons or whatever. At that point, which somehow the hound went through 20,000 and... Both dragons, because he won fifty thousand. Jesus Christ! Right. So, and um, then he then turns around and gives that piece of paper to a bar. Treats it like it's worthless. Now, maybe he's which a, is how our which is how our economy works in a sense. It's I, it's very 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 dumbed down, very dumbed down. But I am working, okay, and so I get a dollar bill, for example, for my work. You know. Mm-hmm. So that dollar, I'm not actually holding. I'm holding someone else's debt. Yeah. In a sense. Well, so, and even that dollar is debt as well. And I'm trading that debt to other people for more debt. And again, it's a very, very simplistic watered-down way of looking by, at it. By debt, it's not even. It's not. I always dislike when people they just call it debt. Um, it's essentially like a. It's a promises. Um, right. It's. I assume. Like this piece of paper, this dollar, ten dollar bill over there, it doesn't really worth. It's not worth anything. This isn't a piece of gold. It's not a. It's not a shirt or a loaf of bread. Um, this is a, a, a concept which we all agree to. That we all agree that this dollar is is worth. You know, a, a McChicken or something. Yeah. Um, and we all believe that because we all have faith. That we literally faith that the U.S. economy is going to stay stable over the next right foreseeable future. And because of how George in his story makes that seem, he makes that. I mean, you've read it, I've read it. He makes it seem like, oh man, this is bad. This is wrong. The hound shouldn't have done that. When that's how our society works. So bringing back that around to Littlefinger. I'm not sure if I agree with you there that that's how the society works, but. Well, again, and it's again a very watered down, very simplistic. The hound is the hound. At one point, had money. Okay, real money. Real he money. Had gold. Yeah, he had gold. So then that gold got turned into promissory note, which then he gave that promissory note to somebody else for a service. So then that person, in theory, could take that promissory note back to the Brotherhood Without Banners. And say, I want this. I want the gold. Maybe even with interest. With interest, right. But but that, in the book, the way we read it and the way George makes shapes it to be, he shapes it to be like an, like something that's not going to happen, like a nasty transaction. Okay, we get that. Um, now let's try and 
So like back any, to Littlefinger about that concept well, is... Well, let's stick to this one. Like any good theory, the best way to check your theory is to see, can you disprove it? Is there an example in the stories where debt is good, where someone takes out a loan, uses that loan, and then pays back their loan and, and makes a profit, and then the bank profits, and the person who took the loan profits? Does that happen anywhere in the story? No, actually, you see consistent defaulting on debt in the story. Um, really? Yeah. What about, like, Duncan Egg and all that? Well, nope, it's just consistent defaulting on debt. The Iron Bank actually calls back all of its existing loans so weird. because Cersei refuses to pay her, like, her debt. Why would it... So you don't... The, the Iron Bank confuses me. Um, if someone's not paying their debts, I guess they hire an army to come and, like, conquer you. Well, what they'll do is they'll just... Um, they'll pay your enemies. Wait, no, what they'll do is they'll just pay whoever they want to to take over your land then they can collect the debt my, from my them. thought on that is I yes and I understand that but my thought is wars are so expensive how long would it take for them to pay back those debts like in 2010 Germany finally paid back its World War One debts to the United States oh yeah and again, this is where we're getting back into the point where we can nitpick George. Is this a George. reasonable business model? We can nitpick George about his, but he knows the macro. The micro is where it is. Does he know the macro? <laughs> I don't think he does. Um, let's get into our own personal views on economics. Um, I am, I'll, I'll define myself, I'm very much free market capitalist, um, laissez-faire, leave the leave the economy alone and it'll tend to do better. Maybe sometimes if you have really good data, you can have the government um, intervene in some cases and notice all those uh, <laughs> hedges I, I put in there. I'm very distrustful of the government going and, in my opinion, messing it up most of the time, adjusting inflation, you know, changing it all the time. People don't know what to expect in five years. What's inflation going to be? Keep inflation zero or stick to gold um yeah i'm big on that i like peter shift he does a lot of cool yeah like gold standard going back to gold yeah i'm, I'm i i understand there's uh there's good reasons to i don't know exactly why but it does tell you something that no one uses anymore maybe it's because it's convenient to not use it um or there's you can trick the populace by not using gold and, you know fooling around with inflation. Maybe that's the reason, but it definitely does tell me something that maybe that's not the best model. Um, I'm more of the mindset that I think that that the government should act as an agent to um, make sure that everybody has access to the uh, same same level of utility. Um, And that uh, by, you know, and having the proper regulations in place, you do not have wealth disparagement. Yeah, you're smiling because you know that's not true. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm generally against regulations in the economy. I, um, the, the my general exception is fraud. Um, if you try to sell me a loan and you say it's going to be zero percent, you know, interest or whatever, and then you I take out the loan and then you change your mind after we sign a contract, you know that it's fraud, that's lying, that government should definitely get involved and protect each individual's rights not to be um, tricked by anyone else. So coming back to Littlefinger, he, George doesn't like debt. I mean, he, it's seen as an agent I mean, of evil. If, is, is this consistent in his, I've never heard this, this before, which is why I'm, I'm questioning you. Um, in, does this come uh, up in his other books? In the Corpse Handler trilogy, uh, I believe it's um, it's the one about New Pittsburgh. He, it's a guy that has escaped his situation. So um, he is a corpse handler, so he can use his mind to manipulate corpses to as be, laborers. As laborers, okay. And he's very adept at it, and he comes from a very very blue collar working area that uh, the people are kept in constant debt by the company that they work for. So they're never, so their, their food 
and their shelter and all their basic needs cost more than what they make. And so they're just kept in constant debt by the guy, and they can't leave. Um, so the, the main character actually is able to <clears throat> escape the situation, and he's seen as this enigma for it. And so he goes back to visit, and George just paints this, you know, this, this, uh, this entire scene where debt's just evil, and how debt, the corporations and the government just use debt to keep you uh, complacent and things um, like that. Do you think that, because you can analyze the situation in a number of ways, like when I first hear that I'm saying, no, it's not the debt, it's the debt's an excuse that they use to um, extract value from these, these people. It's the, the corporate fascist government that's really the enemy there. It's a corporation, and, though. It's not the government doing well, this. Well, it's a... It's both. It, 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 that's the worst oppressor you can find is when governments own the well, means the, of production as the, well as... The issue here is that um, uh, it's not... Okay, so in a, in a communist society, everybody would be benefiting equally and you wouldn't be... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in which case, you would... I mean, if you were good at a certain thing, you would be put to work on that and then everybody would equally benefit. They're not equally benefiting in this society, though. So it's not communism. Um, it's, it's corporate fascism. And it's exactly. And so, but George conflates that with debt and debt being evil. And, and he, I mean, he does, I mean, obviously, like everyone, he's, he's got, he's gray on this. But so, he, I mean, obviously, he does have a character that escapes the situation. Yeah, that, that's. And that does happen, and 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 even his his character in that in that series gets angry at his father for not leaving that situation or the other people. He's like, "Well, I did it. Why can't you?" So I mean, he's, I mean, he, I, you know, so I, I think that he thinks debt's evil, but he doesn't think that uh, you. He does think you can overcome it. All right. Well, finishing up this point, is there a time in any of the stories where debt isn't evil? Uh, if debt is mentioned, it is not mentioned as a good thing. Okay, well, that kind of solidifies. Um, you're completely right on this, I, I, I think, unless someone shows me. Um, yeah, unless any I mean, somebody can otherwise. point something else out, but as far as um, to my knowledge, yeah. Okay. So, that, that's interesting. So, coming back around full circle, if Littlefinger is an agent that's manipulating debt, okay then George wouldn't see that as a positive thing. Mm, this, this sort of disproves my, my hypothesis. So he still, might, he still might be an agent of capitalism. However, he wouldn't be, in George's mind, or in the framework of our story in the established elements, he wouldn't be doing a good thing. Maybe. Because um, is he keeping well, these shopkeeps and merchants that he's... Is, is, is he putting them in debt? Sorry, is he saying, well, hey, yeah, I have your, I have this, you can only work for me now, you can't do this. Is he doing these kind of things? So, yeah. while as a West, in Western society, in, you know, in modern age where we do live in a democracy with, with a regulated capitalism, we see that as not a bad thing. We say, oh, okay, this is a great yeah. thing. But somebody... Mark economies. Right. So, well. so someone like um, who would be a little bit more socialist, a little bit more communistic, you know, Marx argued that we went from a literal slave society under the Romans and the Greeks and things like that um, to, to a new slave society, few, which was feudalism, which is more or less yeah, it, a form it, of slavery. It's not slavery, but it's not far off. Yeah. And then he argued that the next step from that was so we were enslaved to, you know, uh, the kings, and then now we're enslaved to corporations in debt. And so that's Marx's argument. And so... Well, Marx's s- argument was actually that we went from one slave to another slave, and then we went to capitalism, which was an improvement, according to Marx. Yes. And then the next improvement would be communism. communism. Right, right. So, is... So, we, right now, in George's world, we've got feudalism. There, was a, there have been slave societies, and there still are slave societies, which is why... The story is a little funky because it's not, it's different points and it's a whole, it's a conglomeration of a bunch of, a very fast you know, stretch of history. But in George's story, would capitalism be, you know, would that be just the, the next step in the means to the end? Um, or, you know, so I, th- I don't think he would see that as a, as the positive. 
Okay. Um, let's go into my my prediction. All right. That's Your great. prediction. Um, well, actually, not not my prediction because I don't think my prediction is going to be true. But this is what I think would be interesting story. This is how I would write it if I, you know, based on how I think the world works and how it should. Um, let's say I go over what you think will happen. I think you're probably going to say it's going to go all the Dornish route. Um, see, I know, I know you. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we'll finish off what probably is going to happen. And what is Leo Finger's role in okay, that ultimately? Yeah. Um, here's my thoughts. The This whole story was based on, it, it wasn't based on, but it was inspired by the War of the Roses. And from a historical perspective, this is that point in time, and we'll, we'll probably make over this another time, but the this was the rise of Western civilization. At the end of the War of the Roses, they signed the Magna Carta, and there was a new check on the power of the king. The people had a check on the government's power, and it basically said, you, you King John, cannot tax us infinitely. We have the power to stop you from doing that. Um... And in this time, it, it's kind of right before it, we're seeing the Renaissance in the very beginnings of the re, of the um, Enlightenment, and eventually after that comes the Industrial Revolution, which is the force that pulls millions out of poverty. Um, my thoughts on how the story should end: Littlefinger ends up dying, but leaving in his wake is the inspiration or some sort of mechanism that allows the common man to create his own enterprise, an end of the feudal system, because feudalism is a terrible ideology, it's a terrible system, it doesn't help the upper class very well, it doesn't help the lower class, it's just a bad mindset, and that Littlefinger will bring about freedom for every individual to become the agent of his own economic prosperity. When that happens, so begins the rise of the West, the fall of the East, and the beginning of the Enlightenment, and the check on the government power by, you know, through basically creating a constitutional monarchy. And this is the, the spark that begins Western civilization and begins the golden age of humanity, which is today. That's how I think it should end. I think that'd be a beautiful ending. It, it would it would match the end of the War of the Roses in medieval Europe just perfectly um, but with my knowledge of George that's probably not gonna happen George does what do not you have happy what do you think's gonna happen so I, I'm basing or, or, or how would you prefer it how I would prefer how would you prefer it and then what do we think's gonna happen in the end um, what I would prefer is a a Roynish restoration. Um, so the Roin the Roinar um, were a society that lived in Essos. Tyrion actually travels through uh, their domain on his trip uh, east to see Daenerys on the River Roin. On the River Roin, and so the the Dorne, or the Roinish had a a society where men and women were were more or less equal. They had a, uh, a socialized medicine. They took care did, of everybody. Did yeah. they have socialized medicine? Or yep. is they, it just some sort of welfare benefits? Uh, I, I, I never mentioned it saying medicine. They're, they're, it's a summarized. I mean, the Roynish to me, or they seem kind of like they're... What kind of medicine do they have in the Middle Ages? <laughs> they're progressive with, you know, men and, between men and women. They The small folk had rights. And, and, you know, it was just a very socialist society. Uh, you see the the uh, remnants of that in Dorne. Um, the Roynish were destroyed by the Valerians, and they ended the faction of them ended up in Dorne. And that's why you see Dorne being a you know a more feminist society, a more socialist society. I would argue that probably alongside that socialism, you get a little bit more of the communism. So socialist utopia dying due to climate change. Yes, exactly. And um, so the way I would, what I would love to see for the end of the story is uh, the death of the monarchy, the um, the death of 
the way things were and the rise of Roynish restoration. So Westeros is more... So the of a, rise of socialism. The rise of socialism. I would love to see that as the end of our story. However, George does not like to write happy endings. He likes to write about things that he loves dying. So how I see the ending of at least the story, I'll start with Littlefinger. So to me, I get a, a I pull a lot of how I see Littlefinger's Littlefinger's story going from Dying of the Light, uh, which is a phenomenal novel by uh, by George, um, where there is a character in it who basically manipulates all of the other characters. He is the master chess player. He is the all powerful shut in. He's the character that shows up in a lot of George's work. Um, so what he does in this story is he falls in love with um, uh, this woman um, who is in a weird three-way marriage with um, some love triangle. Love triangle um, with a Rhaegar type character, um, and that woman that he's in love with, Jenny. Um, has an ex-boyfriend who is a Ned Stark type character. And so the manipulator can more or less be seen as Littlefinger. And so what he does is he tricks the Ned Stark character into coming to the planet that they're all on. And then he basically, through a series of events, convinces, gets the, all the other characters to try to kill each other. Well, his plan falls apart... And he ends up killing himself. I like that. So <laughs> that's, that's I, I, I could kind of see that maybe Littlefinger's little doing this. He's manipulating Ned to come to King's Landing because he's in love with Catelyn. And, and you see these elements repeating themselves in A Song of Ice and Fire. And so I think that Littlefinger's ultimate will ultimately probably kill himself because he gets in over his head like this character does. However... In, at least in this story, Littlefinger being that agent of capitalism, I do kind of see, I do kind of see George framing it as kind of a good thing that Littlefinger did kill himself because oh. it's the death of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So I, it, so I mean, what is Littlefinger's ultimate end goal? All, all of those merchants who have pulled themselves out of feudalism are gonna. <laughs> well, but see, but but the yeah. flip side of that coin is that you know, in theory, socialism could come in and stagnate and fail, and just like socialism always does. But you know, the the but that to me, I I I'm basing that off of his other works and kind of his political views and things like that. So I, I that would kind of ruin the end of the well, story. But see, for the me. thing is though, that would kind of be cool because. I mean, if we could get some sort of glimpse of what his ultimate in-game is, but he doesn't realize it because he gets in over his head. Which is, which if, is if, quite if we, uh, if we gave George a couple of like, economics textbooks, like if we gave him some Thomas Sowell and maybe a little Milton Friedman, and like, would the end of the story change? <laughs> well, but see, you got to remember, in, in this novel... George does have a, a method in which to force socialism to work. Oh, okay, go on. I think I know what you're going to so say. So Bran. Bran is a method in which he can force socialism to work. So we've seen this in a couple other of his works. So in um, And Seven Times Never Kill Man, you see a telepathic entity forcing a society to live in harmony with nature in a socialistic society. You know, the pyramids, they force the humans that are there to live in harmony, in peace. Is it dying of the light? That's uh, seven times never kill me. Oh, no, 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 sorry. And then in... I read the beginning. Now I, now I know how it ends. And then the uh, Tough Voyaging series, you see Tough, um, he comes up against a, a society of people that won't stop breeding with each other due to their religion. And the end of the story, Tuff forces them by a almost divine intervention to see the, you know, the error of their ways. So in our in our story, it's kind of like the Catholic Church in Africa. I I, <laughs> I do kind of see Bran 
acting as an agent to kind of, and I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm sure it has to do with the Weirwood Net and his ability to control people. I do, and I do kind of see him becoming an agent to force He's going Westeros to enslave the entire society and force them into to... Into socialism. <laughs> Sounds like the worst conclusion to a story I could imagine. But uh, you're laughing because you it, can it's, see that It's going to be the, I can, yeah, I can see, like, some Stalin figure coming out in the end. <laughs> the socialist revolution is upon us, and then the, the small folk dying in the yeah. millions. <laughs> so, but that's the thing. I, I can see that that is it's how... Prob- it's probably going to happen. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah. I don't think anyone else on the internet has made that prediction, have they? I, I mean, I... I we're, probably, we're the first. You're the first. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, if someone else has, I apologize. But yeah, that's kind of my thought here is that uh, Bran is going to force peace and socialism. <laughs> All right. You want to wrap up there? Yeah, I see this is uh, it's a good point to wrap it up. Um, we'll have to uh, come up with some ideas for the next. Uh, I, I, think, got, I got plenty. I think we want to do a season seven full review at some point. Um, yeah, we can do that. I don't think we need to go episode by episode, but uh, yeah. Yeah. but anyways, thanks for sticking with us. If you have, uh, be sure to join us next time. See you.